This is Here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. This series of episodes follows my journey getting to know the Porch Band of Creek Indians, the only federally recognized native tribe in Alabama. I've been visiting the Porch for a couple years now, along with my colleagues, Stephen Potasik and Teresa Davidson, and some of our students. Even my family went with me to the annual powwow this past Thanksgiving. We've all found that the Porch Creek Indians have a great deal to teach us about living in this world we share. I've noticed that dancing is often one of the first things that come to mind when non-Native people think about Native cultures. My colleagues and I wanted to learn about song and dance traditions among the Porch Creek Indians. We especially hoped to learn how these traditions might differ from what we think we know about Native cultures. In the past few episodes, you heard some of our conversation with Mr. Paul Bell, the Miko for the Porch Creek Indians. The Miko is the ceremonial chief. He sets the dances. Miko Paul started by telling us about the dances that are part of the green corn ceremony, which is an annual time of renewal. Because you dance the whole night and sing the whole night through with a lot of those songs? Yeah, and a lot of them special uh, songs that we have there in Green Corn. Right. Uh, now we have a, when we, before we have Green Corn, we had to have a, like a, a feather dance. Mm-hmm. That's when the women dance by themselves. They, uh, we call it a ribbon dance because women, women wear a lot of ribbons. Traditionally, I think they would wear like little feathers tied up you know, all over them. Uh, but nowadays, uh, uh, they, uh, they wear different color ribbons over them. We call it ribbon dance. And when they dance, they the first ones to dance around the, dance, the fire in our ground. No, no man can dance in there to the women dance. Because the women, the first two dancers, they, they usually... Uh, they got like wooden knives that's about this long that they'll dance with. And when they're dancing, they're doing like this, and we singing. Uh, there's a couple of guys that usually sing songs and play, uh, and they make this, uh, the music that they need with some hand rattle. And uh, the women, the first two women's toting like uh, them wooden knives. And what they're doing, they're hacking the bad stuff out of our ground or whatever. In 2022 and again in 2023, my colleagues and I visited the Southeastern Indian Festival, which the porch hold to teach local school children about the culture of the Southeastern tribes. The first thing I saw when I arrived in 2022 was Miko Paul and others teaching the children about the stomp dance. Porch Museum coordinator Brandy Chun and her colleagues told us some of the history of the stomp dance. It's unique to southeastern tribes, and some aspects of it are uniquely Creek. Its history dates back to the Mississippians, before contact with European settlers, missionaries, or messengers. The stomp dance is very spiritual. If you listened to the last few episodes, you heard Miko Paul explaining that all the dances are prayers. The smoke of the fire carries the prayers to the Creator, and the blaze of the fire, along with the dancers' brightly colored outfits, catch the Creator's eye. Green corn is a renewal ceremony. People make resolutions. They forgive one another. They finalize divorces. They smash pottery bowls and remake them. 
They take medicine and relight the ceremonial fire. During the ceremony, they fast from food and sleep. The stomp dance is what they do to stay awake. They dance counterclockwise around the fire, alternating man-woman, man-woman. The men sing in call-and-response fashion. The women wear rattles that were traditionally made from turtle shells. You were so wonderful in guiding the school children to join you in the dance, and you were telling about how the women traditionally will wear the turtle shells, but now since turtles are endangered in Alabama, they're using something else now? Yeah, we use carnation milk cans. Uh huh. And then most of the time, we'll put river rocks in it. A long time ago, when they made their turtles, the women would, or either a medicine man would make their turtle. He would uh, take each turtle and clean the turtle out. Then he would uh, say a prayer over it for the woman to either even guide it or whatever. Or the woman did it, she said a prayer over it. Then she would go to the river and pick up rocks. And every before she put a rock in, she always thanked the creator for that rock and then helped it with make Noah make make it loud so he could hear. And they would do that and it would be just like hundreds of rocks in there. Because they, they would be much bigger than a BB. So uh, that's a lot of prayers that went into them rocks. That's a lot of prayers. And they were so, uh, even the cans that they use today, uh, the women think so highly of their kids. That's their most precious you know, thing that they got because they know that the prayers that went into them, that, you know, them shakers. How long does it take to make those shakers from the cans? If you got the turtles, it's usually a process. One week you're liable to peel the turtles or whatever uh, and let it dry out, let the shell completely dry out. Then you would start adding rocks. And the reason we use box turtle. So when a box turtle, when he closes up, he uh, closes his shell completely. So after you clean the turtle, you leave the, the opening where his head comes out. We leave it open a little bit to put our rocks in. Then you can push that back down, and you know, a lot of times they'll tie it with leather to make it stay down to hold the rock. And they'll make little holes in the top of it. I mean, a long, different section of it so the sound can come out. Uh-huh. Wow. But it's usually just a process. It's, it's not a, like a one-day thing, you know. It's, sure. You'll have to clean them one week and you put the rocks in them one week or whatever and then fix them on a piece of leather. Mm-hmm. that'll tie to your legs and everything. Yeah. But it's, it goes through a process, really. Mm-hmm. The women, a long time ago, they got, uh, gathered box turtle, and they used box turtles because they're when a box when a box turtle when they the turtle pulls itself in the shell, they can completely seal their shell. Where like sea turtles, the, you know, they can pull herself in, but they can't enclose it. So I, I would figure that would be the reason that they they use the box turtle. But they would harvest the box turtle and. Uh, they would clean it out. They had special ways to clean it out. After they got the shell cleaned out as much as they could, now, I didn't tell you this morning, but a lot of times they would set it up on a post or a dead tree, and uh, the ants would come and eat the rest of it out. They'd have to let the ants eat the rest of it out. Hmm. 
but they had to set it up in a tree or on a post or something like that. Nowadays they sit on a post or like a fence or whatever. So the black ants will come and eat eat the stuff out of it. If they put it on the ground, it would, would eat it out. But the red ants is what would eat it out. Red, red ants uh, has some kind of enzyme that'll make the outside shell pop off of it sooner or later. So they learned that, you know, set it up on something, and then just the black ants would come. But they would uh, use that. Once they got it clean, it was dried. They would drill holes in it, not quite big as a pencil. Uh, And then they would go to the river, and they would pick up rocks, choose certain rocks. There's a certain kind of little, um, not a crystal, but it's like a rock, river rock that you can't, basically can't see in water. It's so clear, it's so wide or whatever. They would pick them rocks and then they would say a prayer over it and then put it in each shell, you know, but then they would, every time they picked up a rock, they would say a little prayer over that shell or over that rock and put it in there till they got it and they would shake it and see if it sounded right. And once it did, then they would close that flap on there and uh, shake it a little bit and make sure it was, after they made sure, then they would tie it off of leather to seal it and they would do that process and uh most of the time nowadays sometimes they have to uh, and i noticed in oklahoma sometimes you can't get all female turtles a lot of times they would use just female turtle uh, female box turtles a little bit different from a male mm-hmm. but they'd use female they said that if you put a male on there, he would basically just along for the ride, is what the, what, what the women would say. They just put him on there to take a ride to finish filling out the shell. Did they say the same thing about the men? The humans? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the most time they would, they used, the women wanted to use their, their female turtle. They would only use turtles that, that was solid brown or black looking or whatever. Now the tur- the box turtles in Alabama and they in Oklahoma too. Someone's got little yellow streaks in it, and they they didn't want you to use them kind because they said they had snake in them. Them turtles they got snake in them, oh. so they wouldn't. Uh, I don't know how they got that. I didn't. They never did discuss that. <laughs> but that's that's what they'd say. It had they got snake in. You're not supposed to dance with them. And then they would, after they filled them up, they would start lining them up on a piece of leather, just like you see that leather tied on there. But this would be like a solid piece of leather or whatever. And they would line them up and tie them down, have them, you know, distributed, and then they put them, it'd be on the sides of their leg. The southeastern tribes have other instruments besides rattles. Are there creek flutes? I've heard Cherokee flutes played. Yeah, uh, creek flutes, they, they were mainly made out of river cane. And Cherokee flutes has got like six holes, six holes, you know, if you played it. Mm-hmm. They have like six holes in it. They're cane flute. Creeks had five. Hmm. I don't know why. But mainly they used, uh, I think the 
I don't know where the Cherokees come up with the, the cedar flutes, you know, the ones that you see them playing most of the time. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff was made around River King. Mm-hmm. That was very important thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, most of the time, unless you're on the river, you don't see real River King. You see bamboo, you know, like mm-hmm. Chinese bamboo looking mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there anybody around here who plays a creek flute? Ding can play a little, but he's about he's about the only one. I'm, he's about the only one that I that I know is just not played that much or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now there's a bunch that knows how to do hand drums and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to want to hit something instead of blowing on something. <laughs> um, but the creeks a long time ago, they didn't really use hand drum. They would take like a sapper's knee. The mm-hmm. sapper's comes up until, you know, mm-hmm. they would cut it off and hollow it out and then stretch a piece of cowhide over it. Hmm. And, uh, and then pour water in it, put water in it. And they called it a water drum. And they, they would beat that. And then when it... To make it sound right, if they was trying to tune the drum, <laughs> after they tightened it, they would turn it over a little bit and get a little water in it to wet the leather, and it, cha- it changed the tone of the drum, and they'd get the tone just right. At the 2023 Southeastern Indian Festival, we met the Cherokee storyteller and national treasure, Mr. Chuji Kingfisher. Mr. Kingfisher is also a flute player, and he had several flutes around him at his booth. Your name? My name is Chuji Kingfisher, and I'm from Tahlequah, Oklahoma. I'm a uh, 2019 National Treasure for Storytelling, but I'm also a flute player, historian. I, I do a lot of different things. We were talking about the flute a little earlier, and uh, on my table you see some of the some of the items that I that I utilize in my storytelling program. When I started playing flute, I began this journey not not because out of necessity. But because I enjoyed the sounds, I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed what it was about. Among our own people, among the Cherokee people, the flute was almost gone. We, it, it was uh, very few people out in the Eastern Band knew about it. Uh, out in the Western Band, Oklahoma, which is uh, Cherokee Nation, United Katua Band of Cherokee, it was really non-existent. Uh, a friend of mine, we got together and we started researching and, and came up and, and uh, we brought the Cherokee flute back out and so now whenever you go somewhere you'll see that uh, what we call western style uh, Cherokee flute from that kind of grew this right here and I, I began playing uh, one of my first influences was a gentleman by the name of Stan Snake and he was a wonderful flute player just a short gentleman with a hump on his back uh, you would see him at festivals and powwows and uh, he would always carry a bag of flutes with him and many times he would stop somewhere and he would play and he would gather a crowd. I was mesmerized by that. Got to uh, got to meet uh, other players and, and uh, very important players in the resurrection of the Native American flute, which that's what you're seeing right here is the wooden style Native American flute. When I started this, there were really no instruments that were keyed. We didn't realize what keyed was until later on when 
when others begin to play this and begin to play in bands and things like that where they were utilizing what we now know as concert pitch style flutes. They used tuning instruments, tuning tools to, to tune these flutes. But before that, we were using open scale. The open scale flute allows you to create more sound. In my mind, when I, when I use an open scale flute as opposed to a, to a scaled flute, a scaled flute tells me you have this that you can play and the scale is C. You can't go outside of C. If I have an open scale, it's like open range for cattle. I can go anywhere I want to. <laughs> when I started playing, I, I enjoyed just tinkering around with it. Is that there? Whatever I could create. Not even really thinking about it, just letting my hands play. And I always told us that I, I like that uh, where we come from, uh, Southwestern Bell Telephone Company used to t say, let your fingers do the walking. You know? Well, that's exactly what I'm doing. You know, I always, always tell the kids a lot of times when I'm playing, I don't think about what I'm playing. A lot of times when I'm sitting there playing, I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat or where I'm going to go after I'm done, you know. But what... But what I was told as, as, we, as we started getting into it, an elder came up to me and he said, whenever you play, he said, I've watched you. He said, whenever you play, you play the way that you're supposed to. Mr. Kingfisher went on to tell us that the songs are prayers and they are unique to the moment. Songs and dances can also be for healing. We talked about the healing power of songs with porch archivist Cheryl Thrower. Cheryl explained how important it is to take care with medicine songs. They shouldn't be shared publicly or indiscriminately. Cheryl compared medicine songs to medical procedures. It wouldn't be safe to use them in the wrong context, at the wrong time, or with the wrong person. Because it's something we get asked a lot from a music perspective, yes. from, a, from that side of things, because people approach us and they are trying to be respectful about you know, what can or can't we play? Yeah. And the way I always describe it is um, like dancing songs. Mm -hmm. Totally fine. That's okay. like you turning on the radio here. You jam to it. You dance mm -hmm. to it. It's all a good time. But then there are other songs that are called medicine songs. Mm -hmm. And I always equate those songs to a medical procedure mm -hmm. because a lot of our traditionalists, and the traditional way of doing it when you administered medicine um, or an herbal remedy, you did it in conjunction with a medicine song. So uh, some traditionalists here uh, still equate that with, you know, like as if you're doing a medical procedure. So it's considered unsafe sometimes. Like you wouldn't want to just walk into the grocery store and uh, someone comes up to you and gives you a shot. Right. You know, it's kind of, it's the equivalent of that is what I like to say to people. So it's just, you. I always say to people who want to listen to the medicine chants, you are free to, but it is considered medicinal to some people. So listen at your own risk if you believe any of that. So, but you are free to, but we just implore people to not put it in a public format like a podcast, mm -hmm. or if you do you know, say beforehand, like it is considered in this way, you know, yeah. you know, so just be cautious. You can skip it, you know, so I, as long as you view it in that way, like it's, 
it could be considered a medical procedure or something that someone would, would feel unsafe listening to. Uh-huh. That's how I always like to describe it. But certain songs are perfectly fine. So, yeah, but medicinal like medicine chants and uh-huh. hymns and stuff like that are sometimes you have to be careful about for that reason. Mm-hmm. This would probably be a good place to mention that I won't play any medicine songs in this podcast. I needed to know how to tell which ones are medicine songs, though. You can often tell which songs are medicine songs because they have animal names. Because traditionally, we, my ancestors thought that um, if you had some kind of ailment or sickness, it was a certain animal spirit that was causing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's called like the snake song. Mm -hmm. Or the deer song. I think deer deer spirits were considered, they gave you a fever, I think. Mm. So if you hear like a, a deer song or they're treating you with, with that, it's them saying to take the fever away. Mm. You know, trying to appease that spirit in that way. So usually if you see some, a song labeled with an animal name, it's usually a medicinal hymn or chant. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's great to know. Yeah. I'm just so glad that I haven't turned off the recorder yet. Because every time you say something, <laughs> isn't that always the way? It yeah. is the way. Uh-huh. Yeah, you probably experience yeah. that a lot in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We just mm-hmm. like the dance bangers, anyways. So. Aren't they? <laughs> Pop songs. That's right. They slap, man. <laughs> we were joking about just liking the dance songs. We were also fascinated by the way Creek tradition weaves together songs, dances, medicine, and healing. Paul Bell has seen belief in traditional medicine decline over the years, but he also told stories about traditional medicine being a vital part of tribal life. Within the last 25 years, you've seen it decline a lot. People don't believe the medicine that you take is really going to do what it does, you know or whatever, uh, and then don't, you know, don't come, don't come and say, well, you know, can you get me some medicine for this or whatever, because they're not there, I just, you know, I just go on to the doctor, you know, mm. they think like that, you know. Do you still have access to yeah. the medicines? Yeah. You know? I mean, the the guy that's our Henniha, uh-huh. he, he tells, you know, that before he started coming, that he used, you know, he worked construction. He was a drunk, basically. He, that's how. They, that's what he said. When he wasn't working, he was he was drinking. And uh, we had what we call hot medicine one time. And he took. He said after he took hot medicine first time, all that alcohol was drawn out of his system. Mm. He he you know, he quit drinking. Wow. The hot medicine is like a medicine that used to. Uh, to what we use it to wash with, and then we drink some of it or whatever, but it's supposed to purify you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you drink a lot of it, it'll make you throw up. It's almost like a long time ago when they talked about the eating the holly, you know, uh, making the holly. Um, dang, I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, but the old ways uh, that they used to use holly to make them throw up because they believed in you cleansed yourself every day. But it basically does the same thing if you drink a lot of it. Uh, but it's supposed to cleanse your body and everything. And then there's one more plant that you add to it. If you go to a funeral or go around people that's, you know, go to go around somebody that's dead or whatever, that's supposed to keep that 
spirit, you know, because it, when the spirit leaves the body, you know, that's, that might be a bad spirit. But if you wash with that medicine after the funeral, then that keeps that spirit away from you or whatever. Mm. But I mean, there's, there was nothing, no, none of the medicines that I know or have ever heard of was like some of the tribes use it. Almost like a peyote or, you know, uh, high, get high off of it or something like that. None of the creek medicine was like that. It was mainly t- to keep you clean or something like that. Mm-hmm. I know with green corn, we use a lot of red root. That's what we call it, or we call it mycoanesia. And uh, it means it goes through the meat. Uh, it's a cheap plant that goes through you. But it's made from willow. It's a certain kind of willow that has a real red root that you take and you uh, boil it. I mean, no, you don't even boil that. You just put it out a little bit and you sing over that one and it turns the water red looking and you and you, you take it and it tastes just like a bear aspirin, like you put a bear aspirin. And that's what it is, basically pure aspirin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that had to be where, you know, aspirin come from, you know. And uh, like hot medicine, you know, it's it's got like cedar, pine straw. Uh, dang, I can't even think of it. Hey, some of them, I don't even know what the plant is, but I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Sure. But it's about four or five different plants that you put in there, a certain amount of this, you know, just like you were mixing up to make cornbread or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. For the Porch Creek Indians, medicine, songs, and stories are interconnected. Songs and stories have the power to heal. Chuji Kingfisher said, Medicine, when you drink it, good stories are behind it. Mr. Kingfisher told the story of Kanate, the great hunter of Cherokee mythology. When Kanate had questions, he took medicine. Then he went to a high mountain. For four days and four nights, he prayed, he fasted, and he waited on answers. On the fifth day, after the medicine, the prayers, the fasting, and the waiting, Kanate heard the song of Corn Mother. So Kanate, he took his medicine and he went to a high mountain. And there he prayed and he fasted. He waited on an answer. Four days and four, four nights, he sat on that mountain top, prayed. Kanate sat there on that mountain and on that fifth day, when he woke up, the breeze was blowing much like it is today. And over that breeze, he could hear a song, a song he had never heard before. So he got up and he began to follow that song. He followed that song down into the valley, up the mountainside, and there on the top, he continued to follow that song. And when he would rest, that song would sing to him. When he would stop to eat, that song would sing to him. And he was more determined every time to find where it was coming from. He came to a very large field, and there, there was a single plant in the very middle, much like his pole is right here. And in that that plant, that sun was shining down on it, and Kanate knew that's where that music was coming from. He walked up to it, he'd never seen this plant before. Corn Mother taught him what the people needed to know. She taught him when and how to sing each song. Oh, now you're I know you're I know you're Oh, she sings such beautiful songs. 
Every, every time she would finish, she would tell Kanate, that is how you use that song. Whenever you go hunting, sing this song. Whenever you go fishing, sing this song. Whenever you do this, sing this song. Whenever you do that, sing this song. Many of the dances that you're seeing here today from our Cherokee people are those songs that Corn Mother gave to us. Adante sat there for those seven days and seven nights learning those songs. And when it was done, he took the ears of corn, those many different colors, and he took them home. He showed the people how to plant. He showed them and taught them the songs that whenever they planted, they should sing. Whenever they went out there to take care of those corn, that they should sing. Whenever they went hunting, they should sing. Whenever they went fishing, they should sing. Whenever they should raise those babies up, they should sing. And the people, they flourished. The people, they grew. And they took that corn and they scattered it across the earth. Today, you can find corn in many wonderful countries still feeding people. Today, you can find our people still singing these songs. When we go hunting, when we go fishing, when we're taking care of our children, we still sing these songs because they're still very important to us. We show you these dances and we sing these songs to you because we want you to hear because they're very important that maybe in your life you might use them too. Today, we're thankful for the gifts that Corn Mother gave us, not only of life itself, but to teach us how to get along with this world around us. At least, that's the story that was told to me. Well, don't speak. Songs are essential to Mr. Kingfisher's work of making people's lives better. And so that's why we say, when we play, we play from here, we're praying. Whenever I go to any school, whenever I go to anywhere, when I'm, when I'm playing, I always make mention, this song's for you guys. They always said that whenever you think back to this day, think back to that song and let it heal you because these songs have power. Think back to this and if you're sad, think back to this and let it bring a smile to your face. You're better, you're better. That's as simple as it gets. We learned that healing was the work of archivist Cheryl Thrower's father. So your dad was also an archivist for the porch. I don't know if he was officially an archivist, but he definitely was something of like a spiritual medicine man for the tribe for a long time. I thought healing might play a role in Cheryl's work as well. In her work as archivist, Cheryl often talks to elders who have experienced the trauma and suffering of racism. Yeah, but it sounds yeah. like from what you say that you're you're dancing along behind both your father and your grandmother mm -hmm. and you've um you're doing the work of an archivist but it seems like you're also doing the work of a healer by listening by hearing these stories from people who have experienced trauma and suffering i could see from cheryl's expression that i had missed something but you're that's not sitting quite right with you so tell me about that that, that, I think that would be nice. I would, I would feel very honored if someone I was interviewing, you know, had that thought about it. Um, 
uh, like I, I don't have any training as like a medicine woman, like anything like that. Um, I see my place as purely helping preserve history and recording it and capturing it as best as I can. And as a result, if people see that as therapeutic in some way, then great, but it's never my first intention, admittedly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for clarifying and making that distinction. And I, I do think it can be therapeutic to tell your story, mm-hmm. but I do see what you're saying that you're not specifically doing the work of a medicine woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Tell yeah. us more about your father's work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's interesting with my father, Robert Thrower. He, um, at first he were very similar in a lot of ways. At first, he was a film student in Florida, and then he came back here, got married, and became a preacher. Um, so he was very much within the you know the, the tribal Christianity, the result of the missionaries, like I'd like to think, and he was very influenced by that. And then he started exploring other spiritual avenues, and he became very much into the native spirituality around here. And he talked to a lot of elders, and and I think it was just him trying to preserve history, but then he kind of felt a calling to certain things mm-hmm. while he was doing that. And almost unintentionally, he, he began to act as a kind of spiritual therapist for people around here. And he be he tried to become more knowledgeable knowledgeable about how you use plants, how you properly communicate with, and you know, uh, negotiate with a spirit or something like that. You know, it it was a slow going thing, and he just I think he just suddenly woke up one day and was was just like, oh, I guess I'm doing this now. You know, it wasn't something he woke up and said, I'm gonna be a medicine man today. It was just a slow, gradual thing and I think it was just him just wanting to do right by the community and then you know and I think that's appropriate for a position like that you don't necessarily seek out to become something like that you just are and you just Mm -hmm. find you that you are within Mm -hmm. you know a certain tribe or community I was grateful to Cheryl for helping me understand her deep respect for the work of healing and how she sees her own work as a historian and archivist I'm guessing you would like to hear more from Cheryl, and you will in the next couple episodes. Getting to know Cheryl this past year has been a tremendous gift. She has been warm, fascinating, and generous at every turn. We've enjoyed getting to know her sisters, Sahoy and Rachel, too. They all work with the tribe, Cheryl with archives, Sahoy with environmental protection, and Rachel with Creek language. They've heard every Three Sisters joke out there. If you don't know what the Three Sisters are, go look it up. And be sure to tune in to the next episode to hear more from the Porch Creek Indians. During this episode, you've been listening to a feather dance song. This is part of the cleansing ceremony Miko Paul described. The singer was Kabichi Mala called Raccoon Leader, or Leslie Cloud, who was a leader and shaman to the creeks in Tuskegee Town, Oklahoma, in the early 1900s. Frank Speck recorded this and a number of other songs on wax cylinders in 1904 or 1905. The recordings are housed at the Archives of Traditional Music at Indiana University Bloomington, and there are digital copies of the wax cylinder recordings. 
Samford student Josh McPherson restored the feather dance recording so we could hear it more clearly. And Stephen Potasic gave Josh some guidance. To Josh and Stephen, to Leslie Cloud and Frank Speck, to Cheryl Sahoy and Rachel Thrower, to Paul Bell, to Chuji Kingfisher, and to Brandy Chun and her colleagues at the Porch Museum, Mado. That's Muskogee for thank you. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. Oh, my God.